Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. I'll say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to live and think for yourself, not convert you. So, hey, everybody. Uh, Today is Sunday, September 13th. This year has gone by really, really fast. I'm surprised at how quickly it went by, but I guess when you get kind of caught up in so many things, that time seems to just slip away. So, yeah, thank you guys for joining me today. We're going to talk about white identity politics for the next um, three podcasts. And, you know, I have another podcast that we pre-recorded. So if during the next couple of weeks, if I'm not feeling well, I'm going to throw that up and then continue that, you know, this series after that. Basically, you know, there's a lot going on here. Um, Yeah, we're doing white identity politics. We'll be talking about profiteering. We'll be talking about whiteness. And we'll be talking about anti-blackness. And the reference book, let me give you all the reference book before I forget. The name of the book is The Possessive Investment in Whiteness. Again, The Possessive Investment in Whiteness from Identity Politics, which is basically how white people profit. Okay, so the title of the book is The Possessive Investment in Whiteness from Identity Politics. And it was written by George Lipsitz. Again, George Lipsitz, L-I-P-S-I-T-Z. And so, you know, actually this is a very, very well-written book. Um, It's been used as reference point for a lot of scholarly work. Um, Just read. I mean, I went on Google Books, and you you can read quite a bit there. So I may post this a little bit later, the, um, the Google Books link, so that you guys can go and read some of the information that's there because I think it's important for you all to kind of go and look and see what's happening. So, you know, for the next three shows, we'll be talking about a lot of different things. We'll be talking about, you know, how the establishment, otherwise known as the political elite, how they profit from identity politics. And when I say profit, I'm not only talking about land and money, but I'm talking about their ability to keep their position and to capitalize off of some of the divisiveness, you know, manufactured divisiveness in this country. Um, We'll also talk about how capitalism was built on slave labor and is currently fueled by anti-blackness. Now, you know, many of you probably know a little bit about that, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. And I am going to do a show specifically on capitalism. I need to finish reading the half that has not been told. That particular series of shows will be based on that book, the half that has never been told. So after we're done with this three-part series, we're going to be moving on. But, yeah, you know, with this one here, we're going to talk about the political elite and how they continue to exploit and manipulate the proletariat, which is the working class, you know, for their own selfish agenda. And when I say there, I'm talking about the political elite. And so I put a few questions here for 
you know, just to kind of put it out there to kind of get the discussion going. Because right here, the first question, how did European immigrants become white and at what cost? How is white supremacy perpetuated by honorary white people? And that's what I call the European immigrants that have somehow been included in this, you know, whiteness Venn diagram. I'm also going to talk about what role does, you know, basically people of color, what are our roles? In capitalism, and why are you know our roles important to continue you know um, for capitalism to continue and profit and be as successful as it is, and you know are some white people victims of identity politics? You know sometimes you know maybe it has an adverse impact on their lives. You know, do you find that to be true or not true? We're going to talk about social contracts, how they're negotiated, and you all see parts of that happening now with Fox News attacking Black Lives Matter and, you know, basically trying to flip the script and say that Black Lives Matter is a hate group. And, you know, if you all want to see how this parallels with another movement, go back and look at what happened with the Black Power Movement. That is what they did once the black power movement started gaining momentum and, you know, people were, you know, you know, out here protesting and marching in solidarity and we were working together. That is when they needed to basically um, change the narrative, and that's what they did. And even to this day, if you ask some white people and some black people about the black power movement, they will tell you that it was a bunch of thugs and so on and so forth when that was not necessarily the truth. And the same thing happening with the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, they're trying to call them thugs. Sarah Palin just called them dogs. And, you know, we have to make sure because, I mean, this this particular movement, you know, has had some momentum. And then it kind of fizzled down a little bit, and then we had some more momentum, and then it fizzled a little bit, and now we're back on, you know, you know, back rolling along, and there's some momentum, and we need to keep it going. We need to get out here, and I've given some ideas as to how we can, you know, um, increase our, you know, our role in this political game, if you will. And things that we can do that would actually, you know, um, strengthen and benefit our communities. And when I say our communities, I'm talking about people of color in general because I've posted articles about Latinos, Chicanos, um, Hispanics, Mestizos, however you identify, and their solidarity with Black Lives Matter movement. Same thing with Asians and, you know, in solidarity, and these same groups were in solidarity with the Black Panthers, and for some reason, that type of history does not make itself available um, sometimes, and people don't know, so they don't know to go and research and look this information up, but, you know, that's the purpose of this show, so that, you know, we can um, give you some information, pique your interest, and hopefully encourage you to go out and do some research for yourself, you know, so basically, you know, one of the things that I've talked about on numerous occasions on this show is are people of color truly attempting to end white supremacy or are they just trying to get a seat at the table or better seat at the table because you need to understand that, you know, the black political elite 
many of them do have a seat at the table. So in, in many cases, they're just trying to hedge their bets so that they can get a better return on, you know, that particular investment. So, you know, it's interesting how all of this comes about. And then again, with the black political elite, you know, many of them are seen as the overseers, if you will, and their job is to keep the rest of us in line, which is why you see certain people, you know, damn near breaking their necks to get to, you know, these different areas when we have, um, you know, these these um, issues and these protests. So, you know, it's important for you guys to understand that. And then, you know, if you listen to the rhetoric of many of the black political elite, they're telling, you know, the poor and working class people that are being brutalized and murdered in the streets, they tell them to go home and pray about it. And, and you know, and then they try to turn around, and some of them do this, well, what about black-on-black crime? Because that has been, you know, shoved down our throats so many times that now, you know, white people don't necessarily have to say it. They've trained black people to say that. And you all have seen some of these videos that are out here um, talking about, you know, black-on-black crime and, you know, and these were from black people and they're making the videos and, you know, Black Lives Matter movement and how angry they are and how, you know, Donald Trump said that, you know, BLM people are nothing but troublemakers. They're looking for trouble. And, you know, they're blaming Barack Obama for everything. So, guys, you know, I just want to tell you to stay encouraged. Definitely stay encouraged. It's so much, you know, that's happening and that's going on that, you know, I just think it's important for us to, you know, support one another in um, these endeavors because, you know, things are changing. And I believe they're getting ready to start changing, you know, at a more rapid pace. So, yeah, so um, basically, you know, I just tell you guys to be prepared. Be prepared for, um, you know, what's getting ready to transpire in this country. You know, what I find interesting, you know, if I may talk a little bit right now, I see we have a caller. Um, let me finish up with, with what I have to say, and then we'll we'll see about pulling you in here. But, you know, what's interesting is because, you know, we're going to be talking about whiteness, if you will, and we're going to be talking about the status quo, um, you know, again, white supremacy, white privilege, and a number of different groups you know, that that um, many of us identify with and, you know, how this, you know, contrasts with one another. So it's important that, um, you know, I kind of give you some history. So me, my name is Kimberly Ville, for those of you who aren't familiar. And, you know, it's just interesting because this show has been on the air since, you know, 2011. So it's been four years, and you know it's it's been a little roller coaster. You know what I find most interesting is initially, you know, when I came into this movement, bright-eyed, bushy tail, wet, you know, wet behind the ears, 
green, you know, just brand new to everything and just excited to find a community of people who identified with, you know, certain ideologies that I possessed. And over the past four years, I've seen a lot, been in a lot, and been through a lot. And, you know, what I find interesting is with many of the people of color that, you know, that that embark on the path in secularism and, you know, in many, many other, you know, corporate America, academia, you know, is, is pretty much the same thing across the board. So, you know, you can make that whatever you want to make it. And, you know, what's interesting is you're celebrated initially because you're a nonconformist, you know, so they love that. So you're a nonconformist when it comes to religion or you're a nonconformist when it comes to the establishment or white supremacy or, you know, you fill in a blank there. But what I find, you know, most intriguing and ironic is then you become hated because you're a nonconformist. So you're both loved and hated for the same thing. And I just find it interesting because that seems to be prevalent in a number of different communities because, you know, they're happy that you're a nonconformist and you're standing on the outside and saying that thing that you used to be involved with, that group you used to be involved with, you know, the activity you used to be involved with, somehow you evolved and you grew and you stepped back and you took your agency back. And, you know, in many, you know, groups and many societies, they see that as you're being a nonconformist. And unfortunately, for the most part, you end up being shunned or ostracized or, you know, pushed over there, you know, um, with the fringe, you know, of particular movements, you know, with the, you know, marginalized, even more marginalized groups of people. And so it's just interesting because once you become a part of this new movement or this new group or this new corporation or this new university, you fill in the blank, you know, what's interesting is now they want you to conform. And when you refuse to conform, when you refuse to abide by a status quo that they created for their convenience in their effort to control you, then all of a sudden now you're the bad guy. Now you're vilified and now you're demonized for the very same thing that they celebrated you for. And so I just find it interesting, you know, when I sit back and I watch and I see these things, and, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. The same people who say that we're not a monolith are trying to create their own monolith. And, you know, again, even within the secular community, again, you know, university, corporate America, you know, you fill in a blank. You know, white identity politics is central. White supremacy is the pivot point because white people outnumber you know, people of color. And so, you know, by they are the default. And so they don't even think about it. 
it's just that's the way it is. That's how life has been. This is how we know it. This is what makes us comfortable, and you will assimilate and conform. You know, in, in, in many cases, it's not verbalized that way. However, it, it, it's, you know, it's expressed in a number of different ways. And when you do something to displease, you know, one of the powers that be, then you are severely punished. And so I just find the whole thing, you know, ironic and, you know, I find it laughable now. And so that's why, you know, I look at people and I'm like, yeah, so if you were angry about that, just wait until you see what's about to come up. So it's funny, but yet it's still sad all at the same time. So, again, know your surroundings, know the people around you, understand their position, but most importantly, understand yours. And do not conform to, you know, uh, to a person or, you know, a ideology that does not, you know, um, complement what you believe. That isn't what you believe. Because, again, at the end of the day, you still have to, you know, identify by that. You still have to live with yourself. You still have to look at yourself in the mirror. So, you know, don't turn into a shapeshifter, if you will. You know, don't turn into a chameleon because this group over here likes green and that group over there likes orange. So when you're over here, you're green. When you're over there, you're orange. When you're over here, you're pink. No, that's not how that works. But, I mean, it's okay because you may have things in common with all of the different groups, but you can't, you know, I doubt if many of you 100% identify 100% with each and every group. So know who you are, know your worth, know what's happening, and stand your ground. Stand your ground. You don't have to conform. Be who you are. Do not allow people to dictate to you who you should be, you know, what you should be, how you should do things. I mean, there are some um, proven techniques and, you know, out there, and I understand that. But I'm talking more so um, when you have people attempting to convince you to readjust your moral compass because it benefits them. So, I mean, I have a lot more to say about that, but we will, um, you know, kind of move on for right now. So, like I said, with this particular series, you know, we're going to be talking about white identity politics. We will be talking about profiteering mainly, but, you know, it will kind of spill over into um, whiteness and it will spill over to into anti-blackness just to kind of let you know. But the two shows after this are Black America, New Deal or Raw Deal. Again, Black America, New Deal or Raw Deal. And it's going to be a two-part series. And we are going to talk about the New Deal, how the New Deal was negotiated, how the New Deal impacted um, black lives. And then and now, because it continues to affect us even now. So I think it's important that, you know, we look into that and it will help to 
you know, put a lot of other things into perspective as to, you know, the, you know, wealth inequality gap in this country. And, again, we did a show on how expensive it is to be poor. So, you know, yeah, go back and listen to that in the archives. But the New Deal or Raw Deal is going to be a two-part series. And, you know, I promise that it will be interesting because there are a lot of things that people just do not know. And after that two-part series, we're going to do another two-parter. And in that two-part series, we're going to talk about black humanists, black free thinkers, black atheists throughout history and their roles in socialist movements, communist movements, you know, in America. So we're going to be talking about, you know, American black humanists and free thinkers. And, you know, I may throw some surprises in and talk about some of the humanists and free thinkers um, in Great Britain, you know, because we are there. We're all over the world. So, you know, I'm going to have many different examples. But, um, yeah, I just think it's important that you all know a little bit more as far as their roles and, you know, socialist movements, communist movements, even labor movements. Um, I'm going to write that down as well. So, yeah, labor movements and, you know, what role that people played. But in addition to that, how it impacts us today and how some of these movements are still here because you have the International Socialist Organization, which has a very large socialist movement happening in this country. They had their conference this year in Chicago during the 4th of July weekend. So when you all heard me and I was talking about the Black Lives Matter rally, how large it was, um, it was part of that conference. So it filled up the entire ballroom at the Hyatt um, in McCormick Place. And so, you know, it was beautiful. But, um, yeah, it's important. You know, some of your heroes and sheroes, you know, you need to know what, you know, how they played into these particular movements in this country. So after that two-part series, we're going to do a three-part series on capitalism. And that will be based on the book, The Half That Has Not Been Told the half that has not been told. And so basically, the, you know, the this book brings a new narrative to the table and is it, it kind of presents the angle from the indentured servants, the slaves. So, you know, I have not read it all the way through, but, you know, it, it is a good book. I've been enjoying it thus far. But, yeah, so, you know, basically I just gave you all the next, seven shows, add one more to it, which would be number eight, and we already pre-recorded that because in that particular podcast, we're talking about um, social justice in the black community, the black church, and the black secular community. So, you know, we hit on everything. And so it's just important, you know, we're just trying to make sure we pump out some good shows, some information and encourage you guys to go and do some research, and that's why I tell you all the titles of the books so that you can go out and read it for yourself. Like I said, you know, you can trust, but you better trust and then verify. Because, unfortunately, one of the things that I see is, you know, some of the same people who ridicule and mock 
religious people for just having faith, for just believing because this is what they've been taught. So, you know, when their elders or their pastors tell them something, they just believe it to be true. That's not just religious people, and it's not all religious people. Even in the secular community, you see the same shenanigans. You know, they don't call it faith and belief in the secular community. I call it ignorance, but I'm sure some would beg to differ. Hey, Raina. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Just enjoying my Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm happy to hear that. We're going to get into the topic, but we had a caller. I just want to see who this is. All right, caller, 504, your name and your question. Okay, greetings. My name is Brother Warren. I I also have a dormant blog talk radio program. It's called New Orleans Wake Up. I'm calling from New Orleans, and I was just the last 20 minutes enjoying your your commentary there. Uh, before I ask, uh, uh, make comments, are you from the, this area down here in Louisiana, Mississippi area? My family. You know, my people, both sides of the family, they're from Mississippi. All right. Now, because the reason why I asked that is because you said your last name was Veal, and I am related to Veals from an area called Woodfield, Mississippi. Huh. So and there's a whole my... history that... No, no, go ahead, Ann. I'm listening. No, there's a whole history of that family. I don't know if you know that's very, very interesting. <laughs> no, actually, I did not know that. Um, Do you mind if I take your number and we can chat? Sure. Uh, Do this. Uh, If you go to New Orleans Wake Up, uh-huh. uh, you could send me a, a message. And let me see, what is my Gmail? Oh, geez. Uh, Nola Wake Up. Nola Wake Up at gmail.com. Nola Wake okay. Up at gmail.com uh-huh. and send me that. But if your family is from the Wilkerson County, Woodville area, and you're a VL, then we are connected. And it's a very yeah. interesting history. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I definitely. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I'm going to get into my point because I also, I also do gene, genealogical work as part of a, a as a pastime as well. But let me let me go into the topic you were discussing. I want to first of all express my ambivalence with what is called hashtag Black Lives Matter movement for these particular reasons. I'm concerned about the funding source. Number one. Number two. I'm curious as to where where the the Black Lives Matter movement stands on school privatization. New Orleans has is the only city where over ninety five ninety eight percent of its schools are all privatized. Uh, the issue of gentrification. I'm curious where the Black Lives Matter movement stands on that. I have a concern with the gay and lesbian agendas being fused with the Black Freedom Movement. And at the same time, we don't hear from the leadership in the LBGT community who celebrated many of the gains that they've had over the last two years. We don't hear their voices as it relates to police murders of African-American people. I'm also curious as to 
why Bernie Sanders was the particular politician that was picked on to be interrupted. I don't see them interrupting Trump. Uh, and it seemed like the Hillary Clinton situation, the way the media portrayed it, they would give him a little lecture and be backed off. And so uh, these are some things that make me ambivalent. There was a saying, the revolution okay. will not be televised. And I like to add, the revolution will not be corporately sponsored and funded. Okay, so okay, so let me address some of that for you because um, I know – I've been involved with, you know, the Black Lives Matter people. And basically, if you go to Campaign Zero, and I think it's mm-hmm. .org or .com, but Campaign Zero, um, that's mm-hmm. DeRay Kesson along with Alicia Garza, Opal Cometti, and Patrice Colors, um, that is where they put their platform in which they, mm-hmm. you know, um, basically expound on many of the questions and many of the, the um, you know, what you were talking about, about, you know, uh, private schools, charter schools, you know, and, and many of those particular subjects. So they are expanding okay. that and making it clearer and making it available for people to go okay. in and see where they stand on these particular issues. Now, okay. in regards to Bernie Sanders, he wasn't necessarily being picked on specifically and solely. You know, they've gone to a number of different, you know, rallies. The problem with Hillary Clinton is because she has the Secret Service. So it's harder for them to kind of infiltrate that type of rally. But they have disrupted her, and then she met with them afterwards. And that mm-hmm. video was later, um, you know, um, released to the public. And mm-hmm. basically, they've interrupted some of the Republican. Um, let me see, Jeff Bush. They've interrupted that here in Chicago. They've interrupted Mayor Rahm Emanuel and you know some of the local aldermen. And you know, again, we're stressing to people not only for the people who are running for POTUS, but also the people that are running for aldermen or commissioner or mayor or governor or state rep. So, you know, they're, they're, you know, they are not just, you know, particularly picking on one people or one person. All across this country, they are stopping different, you know, meetings and rallies, so on and so forth. They just don't get a lot of the publicity as to, you know, what they're doing and how they're going about it. Because um, every month here in Chicago, when the Chicago Police Department, they have a meeting and, you know, talk about their budget and, you know, their projections, so on and so forth. Every meeting for every month, Black Lives Matter is there because they okay. want justice for Rakia Boyd. So they want Dante Servin, the police officer, they want him fired. So they they show up, they disrupt it. If you go and you look up Chicago Black Lives Matter, you'll see that we're disrupting these meetings, we're disrupting these rallies. It's just not happening. It's not just Chicago. It's across the country. So, you know, again, a lot of that is not being publicized. But And I'm going to address the third issue, and then we're going to move on. But I do appreciate, you know, your honesty and, and, you know, where your curiosity, you know, is coming from. Now, in regards to the LGBTQ community and the role that they play in Black Lives Matter, 
Well, let's start out with some general history on Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter was started by two queer women of color and another, you know, woman of color. I'm not quite sure how she identifies, but, you know, we'll just put that there. And the Black Lives Matter movement embraces all black lives, you know, whether you're gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, all black lives matter. You know, and that's when we've been putting that out there um, for the month of August. You know, we talked about um, Kimberly Crenshaw's um, movement, Say Her Name, and that was not only black girls and women, but it also included trans women. And I consider trans women as women. But I have to, you know, note that on this show because there will be some people who believe that I left trans women out. When I talk about trans, when I talk about women, I'm including them because a trans woman is a woman. And so as far as their role in this Black Lives Matter, it's extremely important because it's one of the most marginalized groups. And unfortunately, you have people attempting to co-opt this particular movement. And basically you have, you know, some of these men who are trying to, in their own way, take over and stating that since, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement you know, was predicated or came to fruition because of what happened with Trayvon Martin, what they're trying to do is tell, you know, the leadership, or, well, this is a leader-full movement. So there's no particular leadership, um, you know, uh, group of people. It's just leader-full. They believe every person has leadership ability in them. But, you know, you have some of these men, many of them black nationalist hoteppers that are trying to, again, pop up this movement and trying to dictate to, you know, this movement that it should focus on black men, and then later on they'll deal with the women issues and the LGBTQ issues. And this movement is saying no because we were given those same ultimatums during the black power movement and the civil rights movement in which they elevated the black men and promised the black women that they would deal with their issues because they they demanded that many of those black women leave the feminist movement to come to the you know, black power movement. So, you know, again, we don't want history to identify itself. So while we're out here, you know, fighting for black men, we're fighting for black women, we're fighting for black girls and boys, we're fighting for black LGBTQ members, we're fighting for, you know, black, you know, uh, inmates. We're fighting for all black people. So, you know, it's important that, you know, we, we recognize that all black lives do matter regardless of orientation, regardless of gender, regardless of any of those, you know, particular binaries. Did I answer your question? Well, I definitely appreciate uh, your litany of responses. I do hope you email me at nolawakeup at gmail.com. And as it relates to your discussion of the, the half has never been told, uh, the Veal mm-hmm. family history is related to the topic of that book. I, I know the author, and uh, he's been down here to speak. And uh, some very interesting history you may like to know about the Veal family. So if you give me an email, and we'll communicate from there. I am excited. Yeah, I'm definitely going to 
send you an email, and yeah, yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, and I'm looking forward and, and, and to you. And let me you, you got to be excited note. and happy today. Let me let me tease you on this note. The okay. Ville family, the Ville family, were house servants on the plantation of one of the largest slaveholders in the country. That even one of the presidents of the United States asked him to be the Secretary of the Treasury. Oh he wow! Declined. He declined. So just contact me, and I'll share the information and direct you to the documents and other things you need to see. Thank you. I appreciate okay. you made my day. Thank you. Normal, you normal wake up. For me today. No, today. <laughs> I'll be sending you an email later on this afternoon. Yeah, normalwakeup at gmail.com, and the name is Warren. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll continue to listen from my computer. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Take care. Okay. <laughs> How about that, Raina? <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, um, she's not the only one that has these types of questions. And I've seen those questions, you know, circulating on Facebook no, and I don't Twitter. Have a problem. I mean, I don't have a problem with all of his questions, but, you know, it's, you know, that stupid bullshit about the gay agenda. You know what I mean? That's it. Well, well so. the way that I see that, and, you know, like I said, we discussed this in Cleveland during the Black Lives Matter conference, and it's a matter of educating people. It's, you know, and, and some people are going to grasp it. Some people are not. We can't change that. It's, but, you it's know, not it's not just a matter of education. It's also a matter of people just dealing with their bigotry and understanding where this comes from. You know what I mean? It has, it mm-hmm. has like, it's, it's about, it's about, it's, it's about further dividing and, and also, you know, discriminating against people who are actually a part of our community. You know, being gay or lesbian or transgender or whatever doesn't put you outside the black community. There are black, exactly. you know, gay, lesbian, and transgendered people who deal with the exact same issues, if not, and, and, and in many cases, much worse than the rest of us. Right. So, like, we don't exactly. have to, like, you know, we don't, it's just, we don't, we, it's yeah, just this yeah, idea that, that there's some kind of agenda you know, in in terms of including, you know, black and white. No, the the only agenda is inclusion. It's not it's not about you know. Uh, I don't know. It's a whole well. Bunch I mean, again, hetero, again, some heteronormative some, bullshit. You know. <laughs> well, some of that is you know again going back to education about you know um, how we started. How can I say cultivating and feeding these biases regarding LGBTQ? Because there's a vast history about that. Because at one point in time, it was actually accepted. And well, yeah, I know, I know, we've talked about that. I'm just saying, at a certain point, like you just have to stop being. You just have to exercise some empathy. I'm, not, I'm just not of the mind that you know people who are bigots are just bigots because they're not educated. You know, it doesn't take much to recognize the person is another person as a human being. You just need to you just need to understand that whether or not I agree with their choices, right? Or I agree with their lifestyle, or I agree with what they do. They're still a freaking human being. Do you understand exactly. what I'm saying? 
Right, so this notion about about agendas or whatever is just bogus. It's bogus. You know? And and you know, I'm just happy but you know, I'm I'm happy that he called in. I'm happy that he spoke his particular truth because he's not the only one that sees things that way, that feel that way. I'm sure we have yeah, you know wrong. Huh? <laughs> and he's wrong. And he's not the only one that's wrong. But it's okay. But you know, again, you know, it's it's is about more than just you and me because I mean we weren't always here where we are. We had to no, learn. I didn't we... say that, Kim. I didn't say that. I'm just saying that. Well, actually, I never really had a problem with gay people ever, like ever in life. So that's the first. No, thing. I'm not. I'm but, not specifically talking about gay people. I'm just saying in general. But I mean, it doesn't take much to exercise a little bit of logic or what have you to understand that there's no agenda here. There's there's data, you know what I mean, that demonstrates that black, gays, lesbian, and transgendered folks are more discriminated against than many other groups in our population, you know, especially when you take yeah. into consideration, you know, how, how what percentage they make up of our communities, you know. Right, they're a minority within a minority. And, right. you know, and that's a lot of these smaller groups, you know, they consider us French, you know, even mm-hmm. French within that particular minority group. So it's just, it's, you know, it's it's eye-opening. And, you know, for me personally, I know that I've had a tremendous amount of growth over the last four years, things that I once believed, you know, back that first year doing the show. You know, I'm not embarrassed or anything about what I believed then and the things that I said. I'm actually proud of it because it shows my growth. Now, you have some people that are embarrassed by statements and things that they may have said in the past. There's no, I mean, if you've grown from that, if you learn from that, that's the part that matters, you know. So we're going to keep moving on. So we're going to go into the topic just a little bit, um, you know, because he started on Black Lives Matter, and I posted an article earlier this week, and I'll post it again after the show, and it's giving you all, you know, basically the conservative playbook for tearing down Black Lives Matter. And for those that are paying attention, you see that these conservatives, Fox News, you know, Republicans, how they now have their talking points. And now everything that happens is the fault of Black Lives Matter. You know, like I said, Sarah Palin called Black Lives Matter protesters dogs. And you all heard, you know, as Raina likes to say, the dog whistles, you know, the buzzwords, the trigger words, you know, and and is becoming more and more prevalent. So this is why it's important to, um, you know, check. Even Rick Perry kind of called out Donald Trump for using dog whistles, you know, Mm -hmm. Rick Perry. <laughs> right, you know, and so that's why, you know, I'm going to post that article again later, but I just want you guys to be aware. Pay attention to what's happening. Pay attention to what they're doing because it's tried and true. And as we've stated on this show before, 
basically the, the techniques and the tactics that they're using, the strategies, is nothing new. It's just new players. And we fall for it every single time. And this is why it's important to know history. Because in order for us to, you know, make any real gains, we're going to have to shake this up a little bit. So, anyway, I am going to ask Raina, was there anything that, you know, happened this week in the news that you wanted to address? Um, I mean, no, not really. Okay. Um, okay. I <laughs> no, I, mean, just, I know, didn't really pay much attention to the news this week, so um, I, you know, I read little things here and there, but I didn't. I mean, I've I've seen some things on Twitter about that arrest of you know that it took place. I think it was in New York, you know, mm-hmm. with a mistaken identity and the guy who you know whose identity who was arrested. Right, James Lake, you know, the guy um, that he supposedly looked like wasn't even guilty of anything. So, I mean, it's just, you know, just, yeah, I mean, little things like that I saw that, you know, I mean, anyone who listens to that pro- this program should already know what our position is on it. You know, racism, you know, is pervasive, and it, you know, it affects how uh, law enforcement deals with people of color. Um, you know, we're not extended the presumption of innocence, you know? Right. So that's just, exactly. that's just how it is. Um, exactly. And it's not right, you know? It's just not right. Not even a little bit. Not nope. even a little bit. So, you know, I'm going to read a few quotes to you guys um, to kind of segue into this. And a couple of quotes by James Baldwin is, you know, and I'm going to go ahead and read them. White Americans have been encouraged continue dreaming, and black Americans have been alerted to the necessity of waking up. I'll read that again. White Americans have been encouraged dreaming, and black Americans have been alerted to the necessity of waking up. Another quote by James Baldwin is, I began to suspect that white people did not act as they did because they were white, but for some other and I began to try to locate and understand the reason. And this one here is by W.E.B. Du Bois. No revolt of a white proletariat could be started if its object was to make black workers their economic, political, and social equals. It is for this reason that American socialism has been dumb on the problem, and the communists cannot even get a respectful hearing in America unless they begin by expelling Negroes. So he said right. that uh, in 1933. So, um, you know, it's just just a few little quotes that, you know, I thought were poignant and important, you know, to kind of share with you guys. So we're going to be talking about whiteness and profiteering, but, you know, I feel it's lucky to give, you know, some history. And so, you know, over the years, we've talked about a number of different things that happened in this country, and the state of Virginia is always in the center of some bullshit, right? And so, so, so basically, when it came when it comes to whiteness, you know, the political leaders of you know Virginia 
kind of thought up, you know, the 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 you know the image of whiteness and and felt that this would solve any of their you know, and and was is is that we're still dealing with the fallout of that to this day. So right here, this article just talks about how the Virginians legislated a new class of people into existence: the whites. They gave the whites certain rights and took other rights from blacks. White, as a language of race, appears in Virginia around the 1680s and seems to appear in Virginia law in 1691. And thus, whiteness, and to a degree as well, blackness, was born in the mind of America. So it starts talking about how 18th century whites um, could not be permanently enslaved, as they sometimes had been before, and black slaves could never work their way to freedom. And so, you know, I want you to go and, you know, look some of this up about whiteness in the 17th and how, you know, it still continues to play to this day and tends to determine, you know, a person's life chances and their economic class status. So, you know, go and, you know, read this. You know, in one of the examples, they're talking about housing segregation. And so I know we've talked on this show um, about housing segregation, about how the FHA, you know, the government how they built these white suburban enclaves around the city. So, you know, these cities are basically centered, you know, um, centered to these white suburbs. And so right here is talking about, you know, how these federal programs were discriminatory. And there have been many, many lawsuits about this. If you go back to, again, archives from a couple of years ago, I know I did a show, I think I called it Makes Me Want Paula, but, you know, go back and read it. And it talks about World War II and the VA and the FHA home loan programs. And I know I talked about this because I was talking about the VA loans and how, you know, only a handful of black veterans were able to get home loans, and while the overwhelming majority of white veterans received, you know, these particular loans. And this is something that has been happening in this country. And even with the black farmers and the white farmers, you all have seen, you know, the Department of Justice and in some of the legislation and court cases in regards to black farmers and them getting their reparations, if you will. So, again, you know, the VA and the FHA, they created wealth opportunities for whites that were not available to black and brown people or red people. Right. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, even when you go to some of these enclaves, you will see poor and working class white people in that particular community. And, I mean, there have been a couple of cases in which I have applied for different apartments, and I knew my situation was good. And they were like, no, unfortunately. And, I mean, that happens to this day. You know, and so, you know, again, I want you to go and do some some research on, you know, the wealth gap, you know, the racial wealth gap in this country and how now white people possess at least ten times the wealth of blacks and Latinos. You know, this is documented. So, and what's interesting is when we talk about wealth inequality and the wealth gap, it actually would be cheaper or more economic 
for this country to close that gap as opposed to allowing it to continue. So, I mean, America wouldn't be better off. But, again, you know, we're talking about social contracts, and we're going to get more into social contracts probably the next show. But it all kind of ties in here. And so I just think it's important for you to go and um, see what's happening there because it's amazing. And, you know, what's interesting about this is when we talk about these issues, you know, blacks are, you know, they call us whiners. You know, they, they tell us that we're lazy. And, you know, all of these, they deflect all of this just to get us off that particular subject. And so, of course, I'm going to tie this into the secular community. When you have people in a community like Michael Shermer, who wrote an article basically stating that there is no such thing as wealth inequality. There is no such thing as a wealth gap. I think me and Raina ate that up on the show. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's important. It was just, I mean, not yeah. that we had to. I mean, it's it's bull on its face. It's bull, exactly. you know. First of all, Michael Shermer, Michael Shermer you, know, uh, you know, he's definitely good at what he does. You know, he's He's in, involved in the history of science and communicating science or whatever. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of scientists, especially, you know, um, you know older white, you know, scientists um, who try to speak beyond their particular expertise and go into sociology or what they like to call the, the soft sciences or economics and things like that, they're often, they often are wrong. Because they don't have any understanding of how to to do that kind of research, right, or how to address right. that kind of um, those kinds of studies, and so you know Michael Shermer, I mean, he just ignores like entire bodies of data that demonstrate that you know that there is in fact a a a wealth gap and that it is racialized and and sexualized, you know. Um, you know, you just you can't listen to everybody. Just because someone has a PhD does not mean that they are qualified to talk about what they're talking about. You have to you have to go dig deeper, and you have to use multiple sources. And unfortunately, Michael Shermer is not one of them that you should use. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, trust me, I I understand. I mean, we've had numerous conversations about that. And, you know, like I said, we're going to do a two-part series about the and New Deal. And he's a libertarian, so, you know, they, so, yeah. you know from my perspective, I, I just don't think you should trust libertarians ever. Because oh, oh, honey. <laughs> now, I want you to remember that I'm going to give this other fact out here, and then we're going to, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But um, basically, you know, with the New Deal, before the New Deal was signed into a law, Basically, for every one unemployed white person, there was one unemployed black person. However, after the New Deal was, you know, uh, signed into signed law, into became, yeah, then it became one white person to every two black people who were unemployed. And now right. it's even greater than that. You know, it's, it's not one to two. I think it's like one to like. 2.75, or basically, let's let's round it up, one to three, and mm-hmm. and and that is part. I mean, it, it is not by accident. 
that this mm-hmm. is happening. So, you know, again, that's why I say we need to talk about um, when I do the show on black humanists and free thinkers and atheists and the socialist communist movements, I'm even adding the labor movement because you need to understand the role that we play. So when I talk about the socialist movement, I'm going to talk about Marxism. We're going to expound on how God came into um, the word under God in a pledge and in God we trust, you know, on the money because all of that ties in to the McCarthyism and the Red Scares then and then the bullshit that they're doing now with all of these, you know, terror levels or terror terror colors. What is it, like orange, yellow, red, something like that? I don't mm-hmm. even have to ask take any attention anymore. You know, is it green? I don't know. So I don't think it's ever been green. <laughs> so, Yeah. I don't think it's been green yeah. since it's always orange. Like it, I think, I yeah. think pretty much it's always is always ever orange, and okay. um, I think maybe we're yellow once. Maybe we're yellow oh. once, but it's always it's always either orange or red. Yeah, that's what I figured. I'm like, I knew it was those colors in there somewhere, you know. Because I mean, after a while, you just kind of get tired of them. You know, every other news story. And it don't matter what news station you watch, it's the same shit over and over. But um, anyway, going back to the um, labor market, you know, you know, white men with a high school diploma was basically just as likely to receive an interview for a particular job as a black person with a college degree. And white men with felonies, you know, are more than likely to receive an interview for the same position as a man who does not have a criminal record, you know, because I've seen situations. Well, not in which just a criminal white... record, but a criminal record with a degree, actually, was the last study that I read. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and it's just unfortunate. And it's, you know, we've talked about this. And there was. Um, a study at the University of Chicago talking about racial bias. I'll post that a little bit different, but it was talking I'm sorry, about without how a criminal de- without a criminal de- uh, record and a degree. I said with a criminal. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Without a criminal record and a degree. So you know, I'm going to post this article uh, about a study at the University of Chicago and how job seekers with black sounding names were significantly less likely to receive job interviews than white applicants with similar resumes and qualifications for the same job. So, again, you know, all of this, you know, we can put that out there, but, again, this ties into some of the profiteering and how it's slanted to give, you know, white people the advantage. You know, Mm -hmm. white people get a second chance. They get a third chance. Fourth, fifth, sixth chance, you know, and, and us, we do something. I mean, you know, if you mistakenly, you know, step on a crack while walking down the street or spit on the ground, they're trying to put you in jail for life. That's what it seems like, especially with that three strikes out that President Bill Clinton signed into law. But we will get into that. Everybody knows how I feel about what Bill Clinton did and how it has affected communities of color. Is absolutely sickening. But mm-hmm. um, and, and but you also that, have to remember that respectability politics and and our and our own biases, you know, contributed to that because a lot of black people were were in favor of three strikes. 
you know. Exactly. And we supported exactly. them. I remember, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so me too. We didn't, and we, didn't we weren't forward thinking enough, you know, to understand how this may, would impact us later, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So know, I don't blame the black community. I'm just saying we, you know, we just didn't know. But we, a lot of us were in favor of it, you know. Right. And see that and some of us are still in favor of it, truth be told. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it's just interesting. But, yeah, that respectability politics, decorum, all of that, that's not going to save your ass. Your degrees, that ain't going to save you. You know, that you're good friends with Joe Bob down the street, that still ain't going to save you because Joe Bob ain't going to get strung up in a tree with you. Trust that. You know, so it's interesting. But, yeah, you know, it's just we need to understand how, as people of color, how we are profoundly disadvantaged in, 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 in terms of, you know, being able to acquire property, being able to acquire wealth, and that, you know, a lot of these dis- distinctions are extremely arbitrary in nature and subjectively apply. You know, and so it's just it's interesting. Um, and black people, we, you know, as far as their, you know, the, the political establishment, we're at the bottom of the rung, I mean, at the bottom of the ladder, the lowest rung. So we are the lowest in a racial hierarchy. So, um <laughs> It's interesting because when when we talk about whiteness and, you know, when Raina and I, when we do this show, we talk about white supremacy, white privilege, and a little bit of whiteness. But, you know, what's interesting is, you know, with whiteness in and of itself, you know, how it even plays out in our community and our issues. Because, you know, you have people like Tim Wise and other whites, you know, soon to be Rachel Dolezal, and other white people who profit off of our, you know, of our misery, profit off of our, you know, um, ignorance, profit off of our horrible history in this country. And they profit off of it by saying the very same things that black and and Black men and women have been saying throughout history who died destitute. But they make shitloads of money to tell our story. That's why one of those cartoons, if you're on the page, you'll see a white man putting his hand over the mouth of a black woman, and basically he was telling her that she didn't know what was good for her because she was, you know, internalizing racism and all of that, and how he would speak for her, and he would be offended for her. Mm -hmm. I find that interesting, and I think it's important that you guys start noticing these things, challenging it and calling it out, because it does not seem to be going away. But, yeah, you know, um, yeah, you know, when we start talking about, you know, different people who are part of the white group, you know, and, again, we're going to talk about European immigrants being, you know, honorary white folks. And basically when they did that and added, you know, these people to that particular group, Basically, they were setting a level that 
you know, anyone deemed as a white person, they couldn't fall below that particular level in America. And, you know, again, you know, even, you know, the most, you know, benign or, I won't say benign, even the most disadvantaged white person still has an advantage over people of color, people that are intelligent, intellectual, accomplished, successful, that person, that one white person or that particular group of white people still have a higher and a better status of any successful person of color. They call it white exceptionalism. And we all know about white exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, and we all know that it's bullshit. And, you know, we've talked about meritocracy, you know, especially in the secular community. You know, this is just interesting, but, you know, what I'm saying is this, is that they take white people who are underachieving or underachievers and, at best, mediocre and elevate them over, you know, any other racial group, you know, and, you know, uh, it's just interesting. And we've talked about this, and, you know, I know sometimes we get tired of talking about this, but I just feel that in this country we need to reset the moral compass. And that's one of the things that you see happening with these different movements. And, again, I was talking about the platform when Warren called. If you go out to Campaign Zero, just do a Google search for Campaign Zero, you will see the political platform for the Black Lives Matter movement and what they're working to achieve, and it is a work in progress. So, you know, please be patient. So, I mean, you know, I think we should go a little bit further talking about this, you know, because, again, we go out and, um, you know, look some of this up. You know, that's why sometimes I tell you all about these things ahead of time because I kind of want you all to kind of be ahead of the ball, if you will. So when we talk about it, you'll have an idea of, you know, what we're talking about and where we're coming from. And so, you know, what's interesting is, you know, in this country, we hear white men complaining, you know, in particular the secular community. You know, you have white men over here saying, well, that discrimination, that's hard. You know, I don't like being a part of a discriminated group. And the same thing with the LGBTQ community, you know, it started out, you know, Stonewall, black and Latinos, or mainly Puerto Ricans, fighting back, and how that movement was mainstreamed to make it more palatable, if you will, to the white community. And so, you know, unfortunately, it looks like that the same thing is happening with, you know, a lot of our social justice platforms out there. And so, you know, you'll hear these white men complaining about being abused and being treated poorly. And, you know, while we call bullshit on it, just looking at some of them, it, it just makes me believe they really believe this. And that, you know, they're not just making it up. I mean, what do you say about that, Raina? I mean, of course they believe it. I mean, there's already there's been studies out here that talk about how white people think they're more discriminated against than black people now. You know? Exactly. 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 And, you know, what's interesting is, is that instead of them, 
you know, focusing on the real problems, you know, the root of the problem, you know, they'd rather scapegoat black people, Latino people, indigenous people, you know, and, you know, we've just been scapegoated because they do not want to go up against the, the white political elite. They just don't. So it's easier to scapegoat us. Well, no, because they want to be one of them. They want to be one of exactly. them. That's, there you go, right? There you go. I mean, you know, they want like, to... Just like there are black people. Mm-hmm. Right, just like there are black people and, you know, and other people who, you know, look to be down for the cause and, or, or act like they're down for the cause. But really, they don't really want... They don't want parity. They don't want revolution. They just want... They just want to be one of the elite. They just want to trade places. You know? Mhm. Yes. Exactly. And, and that's, so and that's, that's and that's part of what was wrong with the with the black power movement and um the civil rights movement. It is that, you know, although, you know, a lot of um you know, black men were saying they were fighting for our families and stuff like that. And in a in some sense they were really fighting to have the sort of power that they saw white men having. Right. They wanted to be able to trade places. Exactly. Exactly. And you're absolutely correct. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, what you see now, especially when you see, like, Donald Trump, and you all hear these narratives that he's, you know, trotting in front of us. And, uh, you know, it's like it's very disturbing. It is, you know, the things that he's saying and the responses that he's getting is extremely um, disturbing. But then, you know, you have people in this country, you know, claiming that they want, and I'm talking about white folks, you know, they're claiming that they want solidarity, you know, and it's a mess, you know, and, and it's been, you know, that this particular discourse has been trotted out on several occasions and, it's hard to kind of deconstruct it and dismantle it because it basically is woven into, you know, every fabric in this country. And it's amazing. And it also shields them, but it also blinds them from from being able to see it for what it really is. So when you have some white people out here saying that they don't understand, some of them don't understand, but most of them don't want to understand. There's a difference. There's a difference between not understanding and not wanting to understand. And so, um, yeah, you know, you hear them talking about they want to take this country back. They want things to go back to the way that it used to be. And they have, you know, they're romanticizing the past. And as a black person who reads a lot of history, no, I don't think I want to go back that far. I mean, I don't know what I don't want to go back at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to go back at all, except maybe, except maybe you should go back before it all started. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, you know. And so, you know, it's like, you, and it's a history that they made up because things weren't that, you know, um, it wasn't that great, to be honest. Well, I mean, it was great for them. Because they were making the money, they had the big plantations, they had the free labor, you know, happy days were there for them. 
So it's interesting, you know, but, you know, what's, you know, the thing is, is that I want to make sure that I'm fair about that. When they talk about the grand old days in which, you know, white people were just on top of things, they omit the white people that had, that suffered during that time period. Mm. So you need and not just that. I mean, you can also, you can even look at, you know, um, you know, sort of the white feminists, you know, uh, that wrote, you know, about those times, you know, uh, the isolation of moving to suburban enclaves, you know, and all the white women who had, you know, killed themselves by, you know, putting their heads in their ovens, you know what I right. mean, and things like that. So, um, I mean, so yeah, you can, you can, it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't great for everybody, you know. Right. But, um, <laughs> yeah, definitely wasn't great for for women. It wasn't, and it certainly wasn't great for black people, you know? Exactly, exactly. With that particular C system, sorry, with that particular system, that is how it created the animosity between black people and poor whites that we Mm -hmm. still see to this day. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that legacy, it continues and it's on it. And this is why I say, you know, even with what we're talking about here, I am inclusive of poor whites because in many cases their stories are not being told, which is why, again, when I spoke last week and I posted an article about a young man, a white young man that was killed in South Carolina by state violence and how, you know, the um, protesters or the activists in that area, they were frustrated by a low turnout of protesters. Now, mind you, the activists were black, white, Latino, and, you know, but as far as the white community is concerned, they did not come out in droves to protest that young white life being taken away. And so, you know, again, their stories aren't being told. And then even within their own then group, you know, the white group right there, they're not necessarily supporting and and bringing a lot of these issues to the forefront. So I can see where some of the resentment comes in from poor whites, but we didn't create this situation. So they need to stop scapegoating us. I don't don't agree. I don't see what the problem is. You need to talk to your people about that. (laughs) Exactly. That's what I'm saying. You need to talk to your rep because that has nothing to do with us. No, it has nothing to do with us, but again, about you know scapegoating black people, and and but no, they need to talk to the white folks. White folks need to go out there and protest, you know, about the state violence happening to poor whites, just like indigenous people. You know what's been happening with them is just absolutely horrific as far as state violence is concerned. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and I, get, you know, I get where you're coming from talking about how, like, you you, you think that the, you mean you're inclusive of white people, and that's not, and there's nothing wrong with being inclusive of white people. I'm just saying that for me and, and for me and my my abilities, I don't have time mm-hmm. to worry about, <laughs> about poor white people. I'm worried about people of color. I'm worried about indigenous people. I'm worried about, you know, I'm worried about Mexican immigrants. I'm worried about all immigrants. I'm worried about, you know, black women, you know, because I don't have time for the rest of that because they're not, they're, you know, they're, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, unfortunately, yes, state violence happens to white people, especially poor white people, but, you know, 
I don't have time. I mean, disproportionately speaking, it happens more to black people, you know, and it happens more to, to people of color. So I don't have time. I don't have time. You need to talk to your rep. That's what you need to do. Your white person, <laughs> take, 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 take your white status, talk to your rep, you know. There you go. Yes. There you go. <laughs> but, you know, with, with a lot of poor whites in this country, you know, they tend to live vicariously through a lot of, you know, through, you know, a lot of wealthy white people, which is, you know, something that I've never really understood, but I do. And, you know, and they, while living vicariously through them, you know, they're hoping that one day they'll be able to join that particular, you know, um, social status, if you will. And it's just, it's interesting, but, I mean, even with that thought and with, you know, living vicariously through these other people, they still feel that even if they're, you know, destitute, they feel that, you know, they are still superior to, you know, a rich, wealthy black person, which is interesting. And if you want to read more and understand that better, there's a book called The Paradox of Race, and it did a very good job of breaking that down. And I don't think I did a show on that, did I? Raina, on a um, paradox of race. I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, yeah, you're. There's a there's a uh, there's a a saying that I I came I came upon once. Um, I, I don't remember who said it, um, so I can't credit them properly. But um, the saying basically goes: nothing nothing angers a poor white person. Uh, uh, no, it's okay. I'm going to say it the right way because there's the PC way of saying it and then there's the way of saying it <laughs> that's correct. Right. So nothing, <laughs> nothing upsets a cracker worse than uh, a, a cracker with a, a penny worse than seeing a nigga with a dime. All right, now. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And it's just interesting because you know, looking at what happened in Ferguson and in Baltimore and just all across this country, you know, especially in towns that are predominantly, you know, black. But when you go in and you go to the municipal offices and, you know, any of the, you know, um, government offices, how overwhelmingly the staff is white. And, you know, again, we've talked about black oppression and, you know, the number of warrants and the fines and the fees and then being put in jail because you couldn't, you know, pay that fine. And now you got to get bail and pay the fine. And it's just, it's horrible. But, however, by, you know, having those different laws and the broken windows, policing, all of that, it allows white people to scapegoat blacks. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a way for them to, you know, vent their frustrations. And which is interesting because we're going to be talking about white resentment in a minute. And But I'm going back to something Raina said. You were supposed to remind me. So yeah, when we're talking about the libertarians, do you, you know, I read an article, and it was talking about libertarian Democrats. What's your take on that? Are they like the blue dogs? I mean, I'm just wondering, what's your take on libertarian I've never heard of a democratic libertarian before, so I'm not sure. But yeah, I, would assume I would assume so. Yes. 
<laughs> exactly. I'm going to find that article and I'm going to post it just for shits and giggles. Because, I mean, I, I guess they would look like Hillary Clinton. Ooh. Hillary. Hillary. So, yeah. So, it's just interesting. Um, huh. Yeah. So, I don't know, guys. You know, um, back in the 1800s, 1700s, blah, 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 when slavery was happening in this country, you know, a lot of people aren't aware that the slaves were living side by side with the whites, many, you know, poor whites, but um, they were living side by side. And, you know, we've talked about how some of the poor whites, you know, attacked some of the slaves because, you know, their situations were so dire. And so, yeah, just go and read and understand, you know, how how all of this took place and, you know, what the motivation was behind all of that, you know. And so I'm going to read another quote by James Baldwin and it says here, history is not merely something to be read and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us are unconsciously controlled by its many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. And it is with great pain and terror that one begins to realize this. In great pain and terror, I'm sorry, in great, no, I was right, sorry about that. In great pain and terror, one begins to assess the history which has placed one where one is and formed one's point of view. In great pain and terror, because, therefore, one enters into battle with that historical creation, oneself. So, um, yeah, you know, we need to understand, you know, how we got to this point and how, you know, what we're dealing with, you know, is it affects all of us in one way or another but understanding, you know, where it comes from and who benefits from it, you know, is extremely um, important for you all to understand that and about how white supremacy works, you know, in this country and how even when we talk about white supremacy, we're basically talking about, you know, systemic racism, institutionalized racism, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, sometimes it's hard to prove. I mean, it's not hard to prove. We know what's happening. But because it's not static, it's ever-changing, sometimes it's hard to identify. And even if you identify it, you know, again, some of the powers that be are just going to just uh, ignore it and basically tell us that it's all in our heads. So, um this is amazing. And what we're seeing now with Donald Trump and the American, you know, um, populace, if you will. And, you know, I guess my question is, and this comes from an article that I read, and it was saying, are Republicans for freedom or white identity politics? And so, you know, the the byline for this, it says, Donald Trump, could transform the Republican Party into a coalition focused on white identity politics, 
we've seen this in Europe, and it's bad. So, I mean, Raina, what would you say about that? I mean, you know, our Republicans. I, mean, I, I don't think either. I don't think either party uh, has a, a the sole claim on white identity politics. So, okay. I don't think I don't think either party has a sole claim on it. But um, I definitely think that the Republicans. Um, I think the Republicans just by just by virtue of of their base. I think that they're, they um, they utilize it more and more in the open, you know what I mean, than the Democrats right. do because the Democrats have, you know, they're, um, they've reached out or, or had more effort, shall we say, towards uh, reaching out to, to communities of color, to women, to um you know, to to various segments of our population that, you know, that the Republicans don't typically have um, success with, um, mm-hmm. but I don't think that that means that um, Democrats are um, are necessarily the party of uh, the party for minorities. Um, I think exactly. I think that I think sometimes it's just a matter of making a choice between um, the lesser of two evils. And sometimes that's just what it comes down to. Um, but yeah, certainly. I mean, certainly in in this race, I mean, you've seen you know Donald Trump with his dog whistles, and um, you know sometimes it's not so not so much with the dog whistles, but you know just with blatant racism, you know, come out and said things, you know, about particularly about you know Hispanics and um, you know immigrants and anchor babies and all of this foolishness. You know, right, 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 right. And, you know, what I found, you know, interesting about the anchor baby comments is I put that article up, anchor babies are now the new crack babies, right? And Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting how when people were basically scolding um, Jeb Bush and Donald Trump for using that type of language and saying that it was, you know, uh, offensive to Latinos, then they turned around and said they were talking about Asians, and I'm like, oh, so that's better. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know that was that was. Yeah, that was Jeb Bush that said he was mainly talking about Asians, and I was yeah. I was perplexed by that. I was I was really perplexed. I was like I was like he obviously hasn't you know read his uh, you know read his racist lately, because I mean I I don't know of anyone I don't know of anyone out here who's really been I mean if anything um historically speaking. The racists have usually been far more complimentary of Asians, mm-hmm. um, and that right. has a lot to do with, um, you know, with the history of of um, World War II and their internment, and um, how a lot of Asians, um, you know, rather than to uh, really engage in the fight for um, civil rights, how some of them decided to. Um, to take on the model minority uh, trope uh-huh. and to advance themselves by being um, by being hardworking, um, submissive, um, you know, not really making a whole lot of waves, you know, um, and that's uh-huh. how they, you know, how how many um, people, or at least how how the perception of Asians as the modern minority has persisted because many of them. Um, you know, use that to get along 
Um, however, it obviously disguises the fact that many, many Asian uh, people in this country are not necessarily doing as well as many of us perceive. But, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically where it comes from. I mean, I've never, I've never in my life, I mean, I've heard, I mean, you know, most of the, most of the stuff that you would read about, like, about white people, you know, or white races talking about, um, Asians in a really seriously disparaging way probably come mm-hmm. from World War II era and, and earlier. You know what I mean? Right. But since World mm-hmm. War II, a lot of it has been far more complimentary, if anything. I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously they're still racist, so they're not, like, fully on board with, like, Asians being, you know, people and stuff because, you know, they're still not white. You know, but generally speaking, you find that of all of the races of people, most racists are okay with Asians. You know, mm-hmm. just okay with them. Exactly. That was really interesting to me. But you know, of course, of course, um, you know, Jeb is married to a, a woman of Mexican heritage. And his children obviously have Mexican heritage um, because of their union. So, um, and the story goes that Jeb actually left Texas because Texas, you know, his wife was encountering a lot of racism in Texas. Um, so that's why they moved. To, that's the, you know, that's the story that that's given about why they um, left Texas and went to Florida. So, um, you know, throwing throwing the Asians under the bus was um, was a way to get everyone, you know, at least the Hispanic community, off of his back about his anchor baby comments. But it's, I mean, it's just it's just really ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Right. You went from one extreme to another, <laughs> and, with, exactly. and with no evidence, with no data to support anything that right. you're saying. <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so that's why I'm just laughing about the whole thing. But, yeah, no, I agree with what you just said, you know. And, you know, these are issues that definitely need to be addressed, that need to be watched. And and I'm just laughing because, you know, I'm looking at an article right here, and basically this was before President Obama was elected. So this was like in June of 2008 before the general election. And so they were talking about Obama. It says Obama as the end of identity politics as we've known them. Huh. Do you find that to be lies. a true statement? Huh. Is it lies? Lies. lies. <laughs> ah. Ah. Oh, that's funny. And it's in this particular article where they're talking about the libertarian Democrats. You know, and so the name of the PDF that I'm going to post later is called A Libertarian Democrat Manifesto, Reclaiming a Classical Liberal Heritage with a back-to-the-future ideology for the Democratic Party. I have not read this. Don't come on my wall talking major shit. I ain't read it yet, but I'm going to post it so you can read it. But you can talk. You can get on the wall, but, you know, I'm not endorsing this. I just want to educate people about this and educate myself because I had never heard of a libertarian Democrat. And the fact that somebody took the time out to type out a manifesto, yeah, I'll browse through it a I mean, little I, bit. I think, 
I think if you really if you really think about it though, um, Democrats, mm-hmm. a lot of Democrats, you know, not all, but a lot of Democrats. I mean, basically, you know, basically behave that way. You know, they're for very little, very little in um, government uh, oversight of you know the of corporations and the financial markets. You know, um, I mean, look at what happened. I mean, I would argue that. Um, that democratic liberalism is is what's responsible for the housing crisis. You know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, in a exactly. sense, I mean, this is this is I mean the, the problem with the party. With the, Go ahead, honey. I'm sorry. The problem with the party system in in the U.S. is that you know the parties are are far too close. I mean, there there's there's a fundamental agreement between both parties like capitalism and the way that. It, it works is, um, you know, it is okay, you know, um, and the Democrats, you know, they want, they want some small changes some small protections, but in general, I mean, in general, they agree far more often with the Republicans than they disagree, you know, I mean, you can right. even look at TPP for, you know, for evidence, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Hillary Clinton had quite a, you know, hand in, you know, setting up the negotiations for TPP, you know, and, um, exactly. you know, she's now trying to represent herself as the candidate who is going to fight for minorities and for, you know, for all of these progressive mm-hmm. agendas. But um, right. the fact of the matter is, is that she's not, you know, at the end of the day. Right. So. Exactly. Exactly. And something that you said earlier made me remember about me saying that I was going to do a show talking about the Liberty Party. Um, And so Mm -hmm. we're going to do that one after Black America, New Deal, or Raw Deal. We're going to do the Liberty Party after that, and then the Black Humanists and Free Thinkers and Communism Socialists. But, um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, just looking at today's, you know, political environment, you know, with Donald Trump, you know, he's going to capitalize off of this. Him and a number of, um, you know, white investors, white people, they're going to make a lot of money off of this. And what's fueling this is white resentment. You know, um, they're frustrated, angry with the government. Again, you know, social contracts, they want a new social contract. And that's why you see groups like the Tea Partiers and even the Libertarians you know, you see these groups rising up, and you see people like Donald Trump getting even more and more, you know, popular and getting, you know, more and more endorsements from, you know, the white proletariat, the white working class, because they resent what's happening in this country. And we need right. to understand I'm not saying we need to understand their resentment. We just need to understand it's because of white resentment. You know, so I want to make sure that, you know, I I make the distinction there, you know, because he's definitely making, you know, raw appeals to racism, to bigotry, xenophobia all the way around, you know, and it's just, it's interesting. So when you see this, this is kind of telling you, you know, the mindset of, you know, a lot of people in this country. So, like I said, we're going to be seeing some changes, and I believe these changes are going to be coming up really quick. So we have to be prepared. 
you know, so it's it's interesting. I'm going to read you guys um, a summary of whiteness theory, and this was written by Audrey Thompson. Okay, and so it says whiteness as a normalized category. And I'm only going to read a little bit of it, but it says whiteness theory treats whiteness not as a biological category, but as a social construct. In so far as whiteness is thought of as natural, it is understood in essentialized terms, either as a personal attribute or as a scientific category. Yet who counts as white depends on what is at stake. CRT scholar Cheryl Harris suggests that whiteness is best thought of as a form of property. Conceived of as legal or cultural property, whiteness can be seen to provide material and symbolic privileges to white, those passing as white and sometimes honorary whites. Examples of material privileges would include better access to higher education or a choice of safe neighborhoods in which to live. Symbolic white privilege includes conceptions of beauty or intelligence that are not tied to whiteness, but that implicitly exclude blackness or brownness. White privilege is a different form of Eurocentrism. Eurocentrism refers to standards and values that start from European-based culture and experience and that either ignore or denigrate other cultural values and experiences. The problem with Eurocentrism is a failure of pluralism, a lack of appreciation for other cultures. In so far as white standards of beauty or intelligence are simply narrow or parochial, they are Eurocentric. By contrast, white privilege depends on the devaluation of non-white. Insofar as white standards of beauty or intelligence rely on an implicit dichotomy or opposition between white purity, say, and black primitivism, they create a hierarchy that cultural pluralism cannot overcome. So um, with that being said, you know, you know, white, you know, when it comes to profiteering, and you see I'm tripping over my tongue here, trying not to have the great Johnson um, Robinson debate again, right, Raina? And so, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for those who listened a couple of weeks ago, I was debating with myself. So, anyway, um, yeah, you know, a lot of the structural um, racism, you know, isn't being addressed as closely or as much as it should be by, again, the political elite. And what I'm talking about, I'm talking about, you know, access to employment, access to education, housing, and health care. And, you know, there's discrimination in all of that. You know, I know um, it, I've seen it. And, and then what's interesting is, you have these complaints of re- reverse discrimination. And, you know, what I find interesting is some of these same people will say there is no such thing as racism or discrimination. But then when we talk about certain things, they call it reverse discrimination. So, you know, my question to that is, so you're angry because we don't want you to discriminate against us. So now you're saying, you know, reverse discrimination because you're mad because you can't do it anymore. You know, and so it's just interesting um, when they complain about reverse discrimination. Is basically it makes their race a liability. Does that make any sense? I hope it does. 
Um, yeah, yeah, I would think so. But again, um, it's an article in the New York Times. And when was this written? That was written in June of this year, June 30th. Or is that 20th? Yeah, that's a two. So June 20th of this year, and it's entitled, What is Whiteness? And I'm going to post that because it talks about the, you know, domestic terrorist assassin that killed those innocent people in South Carolina. And it's a really, it's a really good article. Um, yeah, I think you all will enjoy that. So we're going to put that out there. But, you know, it's just so much that's happening and so much to talk about. You know, we only have 20 minutes left, and it's still so much more that's on the table. But, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, and I'm going to segue into what we're seeing with BLM, Black Lives Matter, because what's interesting, and we've seen this firsthand, about how when we say Black Lives Matter, you will have, you know, some white people who will say all lives matter. You have some black people say the same thing, Latinos. I mean, you know, you have some people out here that will say all lives matter. And so when I see them, especially if I post something on my wall and then they get angry and, you know, I had this happen. You know, one guy said all lives matter and fuck you and your um, ethnocentric politics. And, I mean, he was mad. I mean, real mad. And I was like, okay. But what's interesting is, you know, when he did that, and what that says to me is, you know, I, I start seeing, you know, people like that. I start seeing their whiteness as a form of antagonism. And it's just really interesting. Um, we have to, that's something that's going to have to be addressed. Because, you know, when when you cross out Black Lives Matter and replace it with, you know, All Lives Matter, you know, basically you're telling me that, you know, I'm a non-factor. You know, I get a lot from when people do that. And this is why we're putting out, you know, information to help, you know, have people understand how when they change that, around and, you know, they start saying all lives matter, at that point you're devaluing black lives. And you're devaluing, mm-hmm. you know, the lives of people, especially the ones that have lost their lives because of racism and bigotry, you know, and, and then you want to highlight your struggles. And it turns into like the oppression Olympics. But it's always about you and what's happening to you in your life when you are the de- the default. So it's like we can't even say our lives matter until you fucking approve it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, I'm getting tongue-tied, but, I mean, Raina, do you think they just don't get it or they don't fucking want to get it? I don't know what anymore. I mean, they don't, I mean, the thing about it, it's not a matter of whether they get it or they don't get it. They don't, I mean, the the fact is, is that white supremacy is the, is what's an operation. You know, whether they get it or, and, and they don't, and they don't like it or whether they don't get it. 
you know, the fact of the matter is they don't have to think about these things. These things are not a part of their lives. They're not a part of their consciousness. So they don't have to deal with it. Because when they go outside, they have a whole different, when they leave their home, actually before they even leave their home, you know, they experience life from a whole nother frame. You know what I mean? Right. They don't they right. they don't realize, you know, what um you know, that they live on the street that they live on, with the neighbors that they right. live next to, with the car that they drive, to the job that right. they go to, you know what I mean? With the degree that they have right. on their wall. That all it right. is you know, because of of systems of race and privilege. You know, right? They don't realize that because they, they don't have to, because they're not adversely affected by any of those systems, especially if they're white yes. men. You know, right, right. And I want to kind of clarify a little bit. You know what I was saying about you know um, the antagonism, how you know whiteness is like an identity of antagonism, and basically what I'm saying that why I'm saying that is because when you cross out Black Lives Matter or Latino Lives Matter or, you know, dis- you know, disabled people matter, whatever, what you're doing is you're crossing them out. You're cro- crossing them out of the equation in order for you to continue to exist, not realizing that we can coexist. But, you know, it, I just, child, you know, I'm trying to kind of keep my cool right now. Because you already know how I go in about stuff like this. And, you know, it's, wow. You know, and and what I'm trying to get people to understand is that before the Civil War, you know, um, you had people of other, you know, other immigrants, in particular Italians. And, you know, whiteness, was they they weren't inducted into the club yet, you know, because um, Irish people and Italian people, you know, they were called derogatory names. One was Guineas. And, I mean, if you watch Boardwalk Empire, which I got addicted to because of Raina, um, you, you would hear them. <laughs> you say you that know. like you're bad or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's all. I mean, there are no more shows, so yeah, I'm mad. I want to know what happened after Nookie killed, okay? So you, you know, um, you know the old spoiler alert, out of geez, Kim. You know, I mean, hey, I mean, we still, we still want to know what happened to the little boy that shot Omar, okay? So you know, did he, did he end up growing up to be a big Omar? Spoiler alert know, number two. Hey. Jeez, okay, so, yeah, so, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I mean, there were white people being lynched, Italians being lynched. I remember in the BA group, they were saying, you know, somebody was talking about white people and racism, and I went in and I answered the question. I gave them some links to articles about Italians that were lynched. Filipinos that were lynched, Asian people that were lynched, um, as well as Latino, and especially the horrific condition that a lot of the Latino um, agrarians faced and how some of the tactics and strategies and experiments um, of those days were done on Latinos 
And a lot of that data helped the Germans during World War Two when, you know, with the Holocaust. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about. But I'm just trying to give you a brief synopsis of, you know, not everybody who's considered white today, they weren't always white. You know, and again, this goes back to the statements that I make constantly. The only real white people are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. All the rest of you are honorary white folks, and that's done on purpose. And, you know, again, the global campaign of anti-blackness, and we're going to really get deep into that um, on the third show. But, you know, like I said, go ahead, go read and and see. And I'm going to read a little part from actually a blog that I found online, and it's called Diary of a Negress, right? And so um, Observations of an Invisible Woman, and the name of this article is called The White Man Inheritance. She wrote this June 20th of 2013. So I saw part of this, and I just thought it was interesting because um, she was talking about white people, and she said the only thing white people have to fear is themselves. And what's interesting about that is I know I've posted articles in which they've had studies in this country, and, and when they talk about domestic terrorists, that is basically pointing at white men. But yet they do not want to categorize, you know, some of these crimes committed by white men as domestic terrorism. So, you know, I find that interesting. And so basically, right here she says, single-handedly they have created a cocoon built on lies, fairy tales of grandeur and their most telling and damaging psychosis, projection. And now they are reeling from the three things blacks all over the globe have felt for 500 years. Fear, hopelessness, anger. When whiteness fails, and it will, not one person will be shocked except them. When whiteness fails, and it will, not one person will utter a word of protest except them. When whiteness fails, and it will, this planet will breathe a long-awaited sigh of relief. When the Boston bomber was identified as a Muslim, whites from all over the world quickly grabbed onto the coded word and decided to excuse the plain as day fact that this man is from Chechnya, Russia, which is right in the middle of the Caucasus Mountains. When presented with their own evil, they run from it, unable to own up to the harsh truth that they are indeed uniquely evil, uniquely unjust, uniquely anti-nature. So it's just interesting. Um, You know, of course there are things that I agree with, there are things that I don't, but, you know, I kind of found, you know, some of these um, interesting. Interesting and So far, you know, I think I'm going to put her in some of my bookmarks because she has a lot of, um, you know, interesting blogs. So anyway, you know, I just wanted to, you know, share that with you guys. And, again, the name of the book that I'm, you know, uh, reading and talking about just little parts today is The Possessive Investment in Whiteness, you know, how white people profit from it. So, um, you know, and you know, it's a lot, especially Chapter 5. 
you really want to read into how they profit, chapter 5 is called How Whiteness Works, Inheritance, Wealth, and Health. And so, you know, we need to focus on that and understand how that is still prevalent to this day. You know, and again, you know, we got to look at um, everything, you know, stocks, bonds, cash, you know, a bunch of different financial assets, um, 15%. The richest 15% controls almost all of this country's financial assets. So that's 28,000 wealthy people in the U.S. receive more income than the 96 million poorest Americans. Now, that's important, guys. That's very important for you to know. And just go out and, and look it up. And the way that whiteness works in this country, it works as a structured advantage, as a built-in bias that, you know, prevents hardworking people from, you know, getting ahead, from being able to, you know, enjoy the rewards of working hard, you know. And, and it's just interesting. And, you know, a lot of the gains made by, you know, quite a few whites in this country is unfair. They like to tell us that they gain their wealth through hard work and all of that. No, the majority of their wealth came from inheritance. And the people who were working hard were us. And getting paid pennies on a dollar. You know, and I just find that interesting because you have some of these people, regular working everyday people, who are complaining about, you know, workers wanting a $15 an hour minimum wage but have nothing to say about the millions and billions of dollars being collected by senior management of many of these um, corporations. As a matter of fact, truth be told, if you all really want to know some dirt, go and do some research as to how much money um, the heads of nonprofits make. Some of these 501c3s. Go and take a look. Because I know Raina and I, we talked about some of these nonprofit organizations. And, you know, when you go and you take a look at their books, you know, if, if more than, you know, 40% of you know, their their intake or their funding, if that goes towards salaries, something's wrong. So, you know, go and take a look, look around, understand what's happening and, and what's, you know, how it shaped the United States and, you know, why is, you know, um, is being, you know, fueled by people in this country, people that benefit from this, you know, playing field, which is not level. And, again, you know, social justice, social justice, social justice. You know, you hear us talking about it. But what I find interesting in different communities, namely the secular community, is you'll hear people talking about social justice, and now you have some of the larger white organizations jumping in. You know, they're giving it the A-OK, but not because they believe in it, because they want to dilute the message. Ain't that right, Raina? No, I agree. Definitely. Mhm. 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 So, again, um, go back, do some research on the Homestead Act of 1863. 
and how they were giving out property. Um, and I don't believe any or not too many blacks, you know, were uh, had been given any of that property. So they can't trace a lot of their family wealth to the Homestead Act of 1863 because, again, majority of it was allocated to whites. And, again, when you hear some of these people talking about states' rights, there's a reason for that because they will be able to determine who's eligible and it affords them the ability to discriminate against people of color. And so next week, when we talk about whiteness and how European immigrants became white, I want to talk about whiteness and the war on terror because I want to talk about xenophobia, I want to talk about Islamophobia. Um, You know, it's, it's a lot that we can take just from that alone. You know, especially with the rise of the secular community, all of that sprouted from the war on terror. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's a lot more to talk about. But, again, go out and take a look and research about the persistence of um, racial or residential segregation, you know, educational inequality, environmental racism, employment discrimination, you know, all of that, all of that. And what's interesting is even with employment discrimination, it is very hard to prove that, which is why you have a lot of people who just let it go and just move on. You know, it's very frustrating and it's unfair. So, again, it's a lot for you guys to go out and read. Some of this will overlap next week, and, you know, I'll address some more about the profiting but we're going to start talking, you know, more so about how European immigrants became um, white. And, you know, even with, you know, I brought the Italians up for a reason, because many of the Italians from the southern region of Italy, many of them, you know, kind of have the same skin color as myself and Raina and some of the other ones. You know, they got a little chocolate going on in there, and so... It was really hard for white America to embrace that particular um, culture. So, again, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, a number of things, and maybe we'll talk about, um, you know, a few things that W.E.B. Du Bois lectured on um, when they were talking about the perpetual black suit, which is our skin. So, um, Raina... Was there anything else that you wanted to add today? Uh, no, no, not at this time. I think you did a great job. All right. So I think I'm going to post <laughs> a few things today, not everything, but a few things so that, you know, again, we're just trying to, you know, pique your curiosity. Oh, we have a caller let me go ahead and pull them in. Let's see what they have to say. Two five six. May we ask who's calling and what is your question? Uh, yeah, I want to know how come it's okay for you to be a blatant racist. What do you say? You're a blatant oh, racist. Uh, like okay. you have so much oh. hate in your heart towards what? Wow. Don't you love how like racist white people they always they always pronounce white people like why? <laughs> why? Right. 
Right, right. You're you know, evil. Hey, your heart towards what, people? <laughs> uh, that's not true. I know, I know, and it's not even worth it's not even worth entertaining. But I just think it's funny exactly. that, like, generally speaking, it's really, really funny when you meet like a racist who who puts that emphasis on why. You know what I mean? Why? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's you know, it's interesting. And um, so there you go. You know, the whole thing is interesting, but hey, there you go. Maybe I'll tell some of the church folks to pray for him. So, Raina, thank you kindly for joining us today. We appreciate you. I thank Warren for calling in, and I thank Billy Bob that just called in. We appreciate you. And on that note, we're out of here, part two next week, and we're going to do them things. So, hey, again, this is Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself not convert you. This is Kim. That's Raina. You guys have a lovely, lovely afternoon. Take care. Bye, Billy Bob. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> <Goodbye. Yeah. laughs>